Mm. Rodney, what's happening? What it is, man. Avocado trees. I'm a Californian. So obviously, I call myself a Californian now, but obviously, avocados are in my diet because I live in California. I mean, do you live here and not eat avocado? I'm sure somebody does, but I'm sure someone does. I recently learned how to grow avocado trees, and it's super easy. You take the pit. It turns out the pit's the seed. Did you know that? I actually did. Yep. Yep. I was aware. I had it. Mm -hmm. So you take it, you clean all the meat pulp that left on it, clean that off, and then just take a paper towel, wet it, pretty moist, wrap it, put that in a sandwich bag or plastic bag, something that's going to hold the moisture and leave it in the sun, like in a windowsill or something like that. And a couple of weeks, it's going to split because it's going to start growing like this. The root's going to start coming out. So the pointy side is the top. So the, the tree will start coming up there and the roots will come down the bottom and it works. And I got two avocado trees sprouting in my kitchen right now. What do you do with it after? And then after that, like right now, what I have is I have three toothpicks in the sides of the pit. And then I put them in like a little mason jar and have water covering as much of the tree until as possible. it's ready to go in the ground i imagine yeah i mean you can leave it in there for a long time because the roots are going to sprout into the whatever container you have and then you'll have to transfer i haven't i don't know the transfer part yet i know there's there's let's a, come there's back an to art that and a shtick hey this is a preview for a future shtick the transfer of the avocado tree avocado toast on tap Welcome back to the More In Common Podcast. My name is Keith. My name is Rodney. And dancing over there is Rodney. I'm dancing. I'm happy. We have a great conversation for you today. And we, if you did not know, we are very much about anchoring y'all and ourselves in compassionate conversation. And a thought for you on compassion today is that compassion is about humility. It's about realizing that you're not better than anybody else. It's about realizing that when you're talking to somebody and they're telling you about a, a hardship or an issue, a struggle, a their suffering, it's just about that. It's not about yours. Not to say that yours is not important, but in that moment, it's about them. Compassion. Compassion. It's brilliant. Yeah, today we're with Paula Yu. Yeah. Yeah, Paula Yu. So interesting, like dynamic we're talking part one and part two here part two we're going to get into some cultural things around the aapi community in america and the dynamics between black and asian americans and that's the whole conversation around compassion and in part one if you want to learn how to productively procrastinate get a great dialogue on what that looks like as well as just Paula's what she does and how she goes about anchoring on who she is and not necessarily identifying with all of the things that she does because she does a lot so aside from that why else would someone listen Rod? I'm pretty sure they would listen because I'm sure that I said API instead of AAPI at least times, one time yeah. and it's just because I'm like when I say a Ron, it's like a Ron. Like it's just a, you know, it's just it's all there. There's two A's. You're just not hearing. Is what I'm a, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But why would you listen? Yeah, like Paula has been very intentional 
and we didn't directly talk about this, but she's an extremely confident human being and that and not in a braggadocious way, but just in a certain way. And that allows her, in my opinion, in my estimation of what you're about to witness, it allows her to show up in spaces very authentically and it allows her to tell the truth and the story of the matter unapologetically. And that has been a struggle for my life, like something that I want to be able to do more easily, more free flowing. And I took that out of this conversation just in watching how she owned the interview, the conversation. So you may get that and some learnings about history. Yep. If you like the conversation, as always, give us a like, leave us a comment, get us uh, boosted in that, that algorithm, however you're listening, so we can get more ears on the podcast. And we're going to talk about it in the episode. Before you do that, I'm going to say you can find Paula at PaulaU.com. It'll be, there's a link and you're going to hear her say it later, but I just want to say you can find her at PaulaU.com. And you can find us at moreincommonent.com. And you can also find our consulting stuff. That's right. So, which we find to be very important and valuable and just like this conversation. So check it out. And it's the same thing with my writing. I have to warm up. I have to take care of all my business emails, you know, maybe review what I read the night before, you know, oh, there's a chapter I'm having problems with, or there's a scene in a screenplay where the dialogue is a little on the nose and I have to make it more nuanced, you know, so I focus on the problem areas, you know, and then I go back and look at the whole book or the whole chapter or the whole script or the whole act and see, does it flow? Is it emotional? Does it show my voice? Today, we are with award-winning book author, TV writer, producer, and feature screenwriter, Paula Yu. Hailing from Los Angeles, California, where she loves to spend time hanging with her family and cats. Her latest young adult narrative nonfiction book, From a Whisper to a Rallying Cry, The Killing of Vincent Chin and the Trial that Galvanized the Asian American Movement, is from Norton Young Readers, W.W. Norton and Company. Her books have won many awards, including IRA Notables, Junior Guild Library Selections, and starred reviews from Kirkus. Paula's TV credits include Freeform's Pretty Little Liars, The Perfectionist, CW's Supergirl, Sci-Fi's Defiance and Eureka, Amazon's Mozart in the Jungle, and NBC's The West Wing. My favorite. <laughs> She's also sold TV pilots and feature scripts. And Paula is also a professional violinist because she's amazing, but not just as a hobby. She has played with the Southie Symphony, Vincente's Chamber Orchestra, Torrance Symphony, Glendale Philharmonic, and Detroit Civic Symphony Orchestra, toured and recorded with bands, including Tudivo, No Doubt, Fun, Arthur Lee, Love Revisited and Spiritualized, and appeared on national TV shows and commercial spots, including A&E's The Two Corys reality show and a United Airlines commercial. So she's awesome. Paula, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Hello. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Paula. This is exciting. We've talked a lot about this because it's our first question that we've started asking everybody. If you listen to an episode, you'll know it's all about the question about navigating difficult conversations. You've given us a very unique answer, and I'm very excited to go in this direction. Think three steps ahead, identify the pattern, and you 
explicitly went deeper to say, understand what's holding them back or what is preventing them from moving forward so you can get through it. How do you go about doing that? It's a really good question. And I don't really think I have a pat answer because it just, every human being is different. And actually thinking about it, I think the reason why I said that in the first place is I used to be a journalist. And so I've had to interview people that don't want to talk, that don't want to reveal certain information. And ironically, at one point, I was a reporter for People magazine. So I had to do a lot of celebrity interviews and boy, do they don't want to talk. Yeah. And it's the classic thing of, you know, you use their bathroom and you look at the medicine cabinet, you know, and find out, aha, there's a bottle of folic acid. Maybe that actress is pregnant. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> that's a little, that's a journalism hack. But wow, <laughs> get into the cabinet. <laughs> well, I mean, so does that where you're, because you also mentioned in that everybody has, you almost said everybody has tells, everybody has. Yeah. Yeah. Tell. A pattern, I think is what you said. Like, yeah. Pattern. How they yeah. approach being defensive or sharing. And if you listen, they will reveal it to you. And so is that, does that come out of that journalism? Like you've just kind of had to break down people to get them to talk? Yeah, completely. And a lot of it too is confessional journalism because you try to bond with them. So, you know, if they talk, I, I don't, I'm just making this up, you know, it's like, oh, I'm allergic to chocolate. Oh, that's too bad. You know what I'm allergic to? That, that's a terrible example. But you try to do it in a way too that's subtle because I interview a lot of very smart people. And they can pick up on that right away. Oh, I get it. Yeah. You're the good cop. Try, you know, giving me a cup of coffee, trying to get me to confess to something. So that's the other thing too. You find out if that person is savvy because a lot of times most people don't really think like that. They're like, oh, they're empathizing with me. We're having a dialogue. They're, you know, engaging with me. And so they start to trust you. And then they start to tell you things, you know, that they never thought that it would tell you. Usually it works that way. But every now and then you run up against someone who's very cynical, very smart, and very savvy. And they go, okay, now you're being fake with me. Stop trying to do all that. And I think for me, the reason why I've been lucky and I really haven't had that problem too much is because I am actually genuinely interested. So, you know, it's, it's not like I'm trying to manipulate someone. I mean, yeah, there are certain things I do want to ask, but for an interview or something, but I mean, this isn't Watergate. I'm not trying to get someone to say, I caught the president doing this. They're, they're pretty <laughs> harmless human interest type stories. So yeah, that's what you do is you just, I think it's also maybe the other answer that I didn't think of earlier to these difficult conversations is be sincere. Don't be disingenuous. You know, really try to find that common ground. There's this fast, this thing about journalism that we could all benefit from if we took like a journalism course that I enjoy out of some of the best journalists. And it sounds like the experience in and of itself has shaped how you approach it is that curiosity to get to some information. Sometimes it might be hard. And this is probably where the disingenuous nature comes from is, you know, your editor says you have to get this answer. And it's like, well, I'm not interested in that answer, but oh, I got to find a way to get to it. So it's more like chess, but that curiosity. So I hear people, especially when some journalists, they'll talk to like, the extreme perspectives and they just ask questions. Like they just sit there and they seek information and they're not challenging. They're not fighting. They're just reporting this information out of curiosity. And I think there's such a, such a skill in that. Does that then 
Paula, inform how you approach or try to approach your personal relationships? And with the chess-like curiosity and thinking steps ahead, especially when it gets hard, like when there's a disagreement and it's like, I want you to hear my side of you or I need you because like that's a feeling sometimes. Does that inform how you approach those as well? I asked my husband. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I can't give away my secret sauce. <laughs> He's checkmated right now. No, that's that's a good question too. I think, yes, it is curiosity, but it's also, like I said, again, a genuine empathy, a, a genuine interest in getting to know someone. But I do have to admit it's a little like the chicken and the egg. I don't know what came first. Was I a writer and journalist first or was I just a, a curious human being? Because with my friendships, I do tend to ask a lot of questions or when someone tells me a story, you know, I will, it's almost like I interview my friends. Sometimes I'll be like, oh, so, you know, I had a bad day. This happened. I'm like, oh my God, go, oh, wait a minute. So the person, you know, at work, your boss, does he normally have that kind of temper? Like I start, I, I, I kind of go into journalism mode to ask questions. And I do have to admit, it sometimes gets me in trouble. Like, yeah, like back in the day with dating or just meeting friends, because I just, it's also, I'm genuinely curious and, and I do want to make a connection with people, but I found that sometimes, you know, it would be like, no, 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 I, I don't like you that way. I just, you know, I just was curious, you know, I just want to be friends or sometimes I'll meet someone and then they'll think, oh my God, she's my best friend. She loves me. And I'm like, well, I mean, you're nice, but I don't need to talk to you every night. So it's kind of interesting. So I've, I've had to learn as I got older to kind of temper. Okay, okay Paula, stop asking too many questions because now they're going to think you're either a stalker or that you want to be their wife or their girlfriend everything. or their best friend in the world. And they're going to make you the goddaughter of your child. So, you know, calm down. It's a weird, it's a weird thing to balance because I think it partially speaks to the fact that in general, people don't ask a lot of questions of each other. So one of the best ways to endear yourself to somebody is to ask them a lot of questions about themselves because we all love talking about ourselves, even if we don't like talking a lot. And so you opening that door is like, oh my God, like you get me, you see me. Like, I just want, we just want to be heard. Exactly. And the other problem too is that, and it's because in my other life, I'm a musician, so I have to memorize a lot of notes. So I have a, the mind of a steel trap. So I will recall stuff from like, so that's the other thing too. It's like, I'll talk to a friend. like, oh yeah, that was like in 1989 when you did blah, blah, blah. Or you, t oh, you majored in this in college. And they're like, how do you remember that? You know, and my husband hates it. So I remember everything. So I think that, which is good as a writer, I think, and good as, as a former journalist. So, but yeah, it is hard to separate the two. And it's only something that I've only re recently realized this in the, like, I think the last decade, I was like, oh, now it makes sense. There is a, just a fine line with social dynamic expectations in Western society in particular, where people are so, depending on where you are too, like I'm in the Midwest. And so, it's almost prying when you ask too many questions. And there's this, one of my family members told me that a few months ago, like, I sometimes feel like you're trying to peer into my soul. 
and it's off-putting, right? <laughs> it's like, I know you're interested because I am just like you. I'm just curious. Like I want to understand and I can't understand. I, I don't like making assumptions. So I, no, I'm just going to ask questions and then I don't share anything and it's not conversational. And then we're not relating. We're just on the couch and then it turns into this thing. <laughs> but which I think is why we get along, Keith. I mean, I you saying that, Paula, like, which came first? I don't even think of myself as a journalist, but we literally interview people all the time. So I guess, yeah. I mean, so you are. kind of are. <laughs> yeah. But the I've had so many times where people are like, why are you interrogating me? Like, I don't want to be interrogated. I'm like, I just want to know. Like, you said this thing bothered you, and I just want to know why and what makes it up. <laughs> That's and, it. Like, I just, like, I just want to yeah. understand. Like, I'm not challenging yeah. you. I'm not mad at you. Yeah. It's, but uh, I think, I think oftentimes the places I go, like I asked my wife a question the other day, like she was having an, Oh, I think we were talking about Texas, actually the decision. And like, I was like, man, like you're very passionate about this. Have you ever thought about like going to get a law degree or like doing something like how you could do more? And she was like, at first she's like almost felt challenged because it's a thought that she hadn't had. And so I think that's what happens sometimes. It's like, coming out our left field for somebody challenging their brain space so it feels like a fight flight moment where they're like i'm not wrong i'm not bad i'm like no i'm not saying that i'm just saying like have you thought about this yeah no it's and you have to be careful with not pushing people's buttons and i think that's what i meant earlier when i said patterns because when i try to get i'm pretty good at I'm a little bit like a Star Trek Next Generation episode reference. I'm like Troy, the counselor, because I'm pretty good at assessing people's personalities pretty quickly. And it's, it's like the gambler, like the tells. So I can tell if a person is a bit shy or more reserved, you know, like you said, Keith, about like the Midwest, like there's certain cultural things about, whoa, stop, don't, we just met. No need to start asking questions that deep. You know, if, if I sense that a person is a little bit shy or a little bit more reserved, I'm a little bit like a chameleon, so I'll kind of imitate them. And it, it's not on purpose. And it, some people say, well, that's very manipulative, but I don't really think it is. I think it's just me being considerate. But I think the other person has to also do that. So if I can warm up to, with someone, then they start to realize, oh, she's very not shy. You know, she's very social. I'm going to open up. I'm going to smile a little bit more, you know, because now I trust her. So I think a successful conversation is when both people can kind of mimic each other a little bit so that, so it's like, I respect your personality, you respect mine. And you try to find, again, that middle ground, that common ground. But yeah, I think it's also about being a chameleon as well. So yeah, you just summed up beautifully something that we've come to understand really deeply. I think we've known it, but just like a deep understanding recently of it, that initial respect is so important to see that person that's across from you, whatever their struggle is, their difference is to then get to the commonality because we have so much of it, but it's like starting there is where I think a lot of people want to go and then jumping over that part. It's like, well, no, but you're not seeing me here in this space. I have a question, but it would change topics. Do you have any other questions on this, Keith? No, I was going to take it to the manipulation piece because I found it fast. I think it's an interesting piece of the nature of conversation. So especially feel that, right? Like I totally get that. You're adjusting to the other person because you have the skill set to do so. Right. Like we don't all have the skill set to do so, so long as it's sincere. And 
how do you navigate that with other people such that they don't feel like you're manipulating them for some personal gain? That's a great question. And I can say right off the bat, I don't have any personal gain. I, I don't need anybody else to help me get to where I am. I think that's selfish. I think that's lazy. And I think it's mean. It's just a mean thing to do. And and I would never do that. So right there, that that's right away. And I will say too, sometimes you just ask the question directly, you know, because there's a moment where you're like, okay, you know, I got to cut the cord. I got to bring down the gavel. And I've had interviews that weren't that great, you know, at People Magazine or when I worked at newspapers and I would just cut to the chase. I'd be like, hey, listen, you know, I said, I know everyone's been asking you this and I've read in interviews where you've said no comment, but you know, I got to ask it. I got to do my job. Are you pregnant? Or <laughs> whatever. I'm just shaking that up. Or, are you <laughs> Look in my eyes and tell me your deepest yeah. secret. <laughs> Look at me. It's like the, it literally is the good cop where it's like they, they, they throw the cop and come across the table and gone is the good cop. And they're like, all yeah. right, now did yeah. you do it? You know, where's the murder weapon? So yeah, at some point there is a breaking point for me. And I'm like, okay, I got a cup of cord. And, and I think also it's the same in personal relationships and arguments, you know, with your loved ones or a, an uncomfortable debate you're having with someone about the election, you know, and then you just have to say, okay, wait, are you? a Democrat or Republican, like, you know, you just have to just ask it, who did you, vote? you know, just how do you feel about Texas? Just, and then I think the other thing too, about conversations, just one last thing I do want to say on this is you also know when to walk away. Sometimes you're not going to find common ground. And if you realize that ironically in a way that is your common ground, because you're like, we don't have one. Yeah. Mutual disagreement. Yeah. And, and the longer you stay, it's just going to, become something toxic and, and you don't want that and it ruins your day. So I've come a long way on this. I used to think that agreeing to disagree was, I what did I think? Out. I didn't like it. Yeah. What's that? A cop, cop out. out. Yeah. I, I think maybe a cop out. I just, I, mm -hmm. I didn't like it, but I actually think it's fits along the lines of a compassionate act and sometimes what's needed to even advance the conversation in the future. It's preserving the space to say like, you think this and I think this, and I'm not willing to budge on this and I don't need to sell you any further. Let's just end this right here. And I, I think it's actually a super responsible and like super adult thing to do. I think I was probably rooted more in my need to be right. Be like, no, 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 we're not done with this. <laughs> like, we need to keep going. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I'm married to a seventh grade math teacher. And so we talk about the whole, the seventh grader always has to have the last word. Go to the principal's office. Oh yeah, well you did it. No, what? Stop talking. Yeah, but... But it's, it's that, yeah, but the, what the 12 year old does. So yeah, and, and I think of it too that way where it's, it's like, by me walking away, is it a cop out? Am I giving up? Technically, yes. But emotionally, by walking away, sometimes that might resonate with that person down the line. They'll be like, oh, I, you know, I really miss that person. Oh, wow. I, that friendship ended and it hopefully maybe it plants a seed. You plant a seed, you walk away and I guess it also depends on what the what it is. Cause if it's like a senator in a hearing who's just like, you know what, let's just agree to disagree and they walk out of the they hearing and they don't finish yeah, it. It's like, bro, okay. Like yeah. <laughs> like what if it <laughs> what if it's a personal yeah, relationship yeah. and it's like, you know what, <laughs> we might need space. And and that way personally it's different. Yeah. 
there's this Buddhist concept called Zhen, and it's a Zhen ratio. And it's this idea, it's this ratio of positive and negative thing that are in life. And you can have a personal Zhen ratio, cultural Zhen ratio. And culturally, I think both of these speak to this negative Zhen ratio that we have where we don't trust people. So we think that people are interrogating us versus trying to connect with us. It's like, oh, they're showing interest, so let me open up. Instead, it's a, why are you trying to manipulate me? And this is a, a more common than otherwise, depending on where you are in the country. And then you have the agreeing to disagree being, like it's this need to accomplish when what are we accomplishing if we force our way forward versus a patient, slow, hey, what matters here is our relationship. Obviously, there are contexts where you can't do that, whether it's a job interview. No, I agree to disagree that that matters to me, right? Like you're not going to get the job. Or if you're in a debate at a po political uh, campaign, that's different. But if you're managing a relationship, sometimes agreeing to disagree, Rodney and I have had to agree to disagree a lot in our relationship. For like 19 years. And we maintain our friendship as the core, that connection versus having to be right. So I think it's a, a fascinating reflection of cultural norms, especially in Western civilization. I think that's really beautiful what you said, and that I need to now Google all that. That's really interesting. But just to sum up too, I think what Rodney said earlier about senators and about and what you said about job interviews, there do have to be boundaries. So if you're going to say something that is racist, ableist, homophobic, or transphobic, or just something that is basically ethically, morally, and also legally wrong, it's over. That I think that in conversations, we have to know where the boundaries are as well. You said something that caught my attention. You said in my other life, I'm a, and as people listening know, because they just listened to your bio not too long ago, you do a lot of things. You, and I'm wondering how you do it. I remember having a conversation with you a few years back and you talked kind of about your writing style, like how you work on one project at a time. You might do research for another, but like you work on one thing at a time and then move on very purposefully. Do you do that same thing with like your musician, your journalist, your writer, your teacher, your wife? Like, are, do you compartmentalize things or focus on them one at a time? Or how is it that you do all of the things and you do them well? It's a very selfish question. I want to know. Uh, no, that's, that's a good question. I think at the core, everything I do is the same. I think of music no differently than I do writing. I think of you know, teaching no different than writing and music and so forth. It's, it really is all the same thing. When you play the violin, you have to warm up. You have to do your, you have to do your scales. You have to listen. You have to make sure that your fingers are warmed up. Then you have to practice the technical stuff. There, there's a piece of music that you're learning and it's hard to get that, that one arpeggio or that one shift on the E string or something like that. So you practice that one measure over and over till you get it. And then you start looking at the whole piece musically. How can I interpret it? You know, how can I reinterpret Mozart in a way that is honoring what Mozart wanted, but yet still shows my personality and how I would approach interpreting that piece of music. And then you end with just having fun. I'm going to just sight read something and do something fun. And it's the same thing with my writing. 
I have to warm up. I have to take care of all my business emails, you know, maybe review what I read the night before, you know, oh, there's a chapter I'm having problems with, or there's a scene in a screenplay where the dialogue is a little on the nose. I have to make it more nuanced, you know, so I focus on the problem areas, you know, and then I go back and look at the whole book or the whole chapter or the whole script or the whole act and see, does it flow? Is it emotional? Does it show my voice? and everything. And then later I want to have fun. What's my next picture book? Or how can I write about my cats? Or, you know, let me read a book for fun. Or, oh, let me watch. There's a great new episode of Ted Lasso or something. Let me watch something fun. Cause that's still, do you see what I mean? So it's the same thing. Let me see if I'm hearing you right. It's the core. You don't see them as different. Like uh, the output's different, but what you're doing and what, what connects you to these things is the same or it's very similar. Yeah, it's my way of expressing myself. It's my way of communicating and I not not just ideas but also emotion, you know. And and so in order to express your emotions, you do have to actually go through logic and analysis. It's like therapy or whatever. It's like if you're feeling sad, you have to go back and analyze what triggered this sadness. I almost feel like we're having a conversation about passion without having a conversation about passion. Like you're expressing yourself through these things. Because some people would look at it like, oh, my God, like, that's just too much. Like, you're doing too much. Sit down. And it's like, no, like, you deeply connect to these things. You found some technical and tactical and just some nuanced similarities between actually how you do them. End of the day, they are you. Like, they are just so you're not reaching to find new things just to do them. You're, you're deeply connected to things that. So this is like a conversation we've we've had a lot. And I think you bring a very interesting perspective to the sense of identity. Would you identify yourself as a violinist, as a screenwriter, as a, an author? Or do you identify as something else? Those are just the things that you do to express who you are. Oh, that's interesting. I, my gut instinct is just to say I'm a writer, you know, it's, it's, uh, because that, that's what I do. And, and even with music, I improvise. I write. I write with music. You know, so I, I would just say, in general, I am a writer. Um, I think at this point, violin is a very expensive hobby because <laughs> I was going to be a musician. I, music was original. I, I wanted to be a professional. You know, play in an orchestra, be a professional musician. I still do that freelance wise, but I think with music, it was always about I'm always playing what someone else wrote, and I can add my interpretation to it. I can put a bow on the, I, you know, I didn't design the dress, but I can add, like, I can accessorize. So I can accessorize with music, but it's not completely me. And that's what I like about writing, because with writing, that's not, I'm not Mozart, that's not what I'm saying. But at least with writing, that's, that's all me. And that to me is much more satisfying, but I can't not play the violin or play music. And then I can't not, they're just kind of interwoven together. But I, I do want to say, too, with my process, what Rodney was talking about earlier was it is a little bit of compartmentalization. Like what I do is if I have because also I'm a professional, we have jobs, you know, whether it's a wedding gig, an audition or I'm working on a TV show or I have a book deadline. Deadlines work comes first. You've got to get that through. And so it's like if I'm on deadline, you know, and I don't have time to practice, I'll at least maybe play for 10 minutes just to do like, you know. Like the deep breath that we did at the beginning of the podcast, the violin in a way is like a deep breath. Let me just play for a little bit, kind of get into a mood, put the violin away, spend the next eight hours writing. 
that kind of thing, or or vice versa. If I'm practicing and I'm just burned out and I don't want to write, I'll just veg in front of the TV or something. And and I will say too that being creative, whether it's writing or music or whatever, the other thing that I and this took a long time to figure out, but now I now that I discovered it, I do it all the time, which is where I don't do anything. I used to think I was a procrastinator, but I realized no, it's you're letting it's like a pressure cooker. You put the pot roast in the pressure cooker, you close the lid and you walk away and you let the juices kind of marinate and everything. And I've been discovering that as well. Sometimes, you know, I used to be, nope, push through it, push, play through the pain, you know, get that chapter done. And I now know when to call it. That has been the biggest new epiphany for my, in both my careers is when to walk away. You know, I'm not going to figure out this piece today or I'm not going to figure out how to rewrite that scene or get that chapter done. I'm just walking away shut the computer, shut the violin case, and go play with the cats. On the pressure cooker, do you work best when the pressure is higher, like closer to deadline or no? When I was younger, I did the typical thing in my, in high school and in college and in my 20s where I would procrastinate and then at the last minute, you know, oh, it's all nighter. And, and then I would be like, thank God I procrastinated because I never would have come up with that genius article, you know, and everything. And it's funny because looking back, and this is going to sound really harsh and I don't want to be judgy. It's a little immature. It's kind of an immature, young, green writer way of thinking. That's that's really not what you should be doing. And the only reason why you lucked out and got that paper done and got an A or actually did a pretty good job was because, believe it or not, you were marinating that whole time. You know, so you have to and you have to change how you view that. So it's not, you're not procrastinating, you're marinating. And so that means that you should not procrastinate on purpose. And to me, that's, that's what a lot of younger writers do. We have the tendency to conflate. And this is something I've recently come to terms with as well, that procrastination is like this intentional delay of doing something that you have because you just don't want to do it versus if you sit in front of a computer, this happened to me yesterday, and I'm writing for our consulting. I'm writing a, a script for an upcoming consulting speaking thing that Rodney and I are doing. And I literally, I just couldn't find the words. Like I'm staring at this paragraph and I just couldn't. And just saying, okay, today is not the day. I have, to, let me come back to this. And just stepped away. And, but, in the past, similar to you, I would have just been like, I don't feel like writing. And it's not even a seeded thought. You're just like moving it because you just don't feel like it. And those are two different things. And we tend to put them together. What is that feeling for you? Like, what is that like for you when you've realized I've hit this, this spot? And how do you recognize it? No, and that's a great point too. the, the word conflate. You're right. We, t- we tend to conflate and mix those two concepts up. I used to be scared. At first, when I'd be like, okay, I'm going to walk away. And I'm like, oh God, you know, it's, it's, I'm going to have, oh, I'm going to have a crappy day tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to suck, you know? But I think the other thing too, <laughs> the other thing too, the older you get, the whole late night owl, I was always a late night owl person. And because I turned 52, <laughs> being a woman and <laughs> being 52, I'm finding that I get tired at night now. And I'm actually becoming a morning person. I'm becoming that person that wakes up at seven. And I'm like, no, I hate waking up at seven. And I become the early morning writer. So part of that is just age. 
And, but part of it is it's kind of exciting because it's, it's a new process. And because I've been successful in saying, okay, you know what? It's 11 o'clock. I'm not staying up till two like I usually do. It's, it's nine o'clock. I'm done. I'm done. And, but because the next day I would wake up at seven or eight and boom, you know, the thing marinated, the, the, the steam came out of the pressure cooker. And then I wrote and I'm like, Oh, now I felt so much fresher because that's happened successfully for a while. Now I'm not scared when I do walk away. So I think that with writing and with doing whatever it is that is creative and you're on deadline, you have to kind of go through a few scary moments of walking away because, you know, it's kind of like this, when the Olympics, we just had the Olympics. It's when I see those gymnasts and they do the backflip on the balance bar. It's like the first few times, you know, they fall, they, they get injured and everything. But after a while, they start to do it. And it's, it's a little bit like that. You're training for the Olympics. You're going to fall down a lot. But if you keep practicing, eventually you're going to nail that. You're going to stick the landing. So because I've stuck the landing several times now, I'm no longer. You have a little bit of you know, that yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Real quick, like you said, it's an immature thing, and I and I would would agree. And being somebody who has been like a king procrastinator through much of my life, like I was like, mm, it's not immature, and I'm like, yeah, it's immature. But like I started thinking about it in the conflation of things. Sometimes it's I think what I settled on a lot was selling myself the story, like whatever project I'm doing, if I'm designing something for a class or whatever it is, like I got a garden project or yard project or house project. It's like, it'll be better if I wait, like that's what I sold myself. But really underneath that for me is a lot of things like, should I be doing this? Am I, am I the right one to be doing? Like there's a whole bunch of personal feelings, emotions that I'm just writing off as saying like, Oh, it'll be better if I wait. And I would definitely say in my life, it's been an immature process. My question for you is this, what tip would you give somebody who is a procrastinator to help shift that process? Like you mentioned shifting to the pressure cooker idea. How would you suggest that somebody might go about doing that? That's that's a good question as well. I, I think it's a right brain, left brain thing, because when I'm not feeling it, I still, there are days where you're like, you know what though? I really can't spend the whole day just playing with the cats and watching Food Network. I I've actually, I do have to <laughs> You have to get some type of work done. So it's left brain, right yeah. brain thing. So if one side of the brain isn't working, I'm like, okay, let's do research or let's outline or let's go back and line edit an earlier thing. So at least I'm working on something. If I can't figure out a piece, like if I'm having trouble learning a piece, let's go back and work on our scales. Let's go back and play a piece I played successfully and go back and revisit it and work on that, you know, and it's a little bit like being an athlete where I am the least, I'm horrible with athletics. And I, and I think that's why I gravitate towards things like the Olympics or, you know, I understand the thrill of watching like a sporting event and things like that. When, when you're an athlete, you know, marathon runners, they don't run 26 miles every day. Some days they do stretching and calisthenics and they do sprints, like a two mile sprint or something like that, or they'll do the 10 mile run. It's, does that make sense? It's like you can work on problem solving or, or your exercises. So I think for someone who is procrastinating and they need to at least do something physical, I'm like sitting, like, look, let's say you're working on your first novel and you're procrastinating and you're, you're just confused. Well, then if you're not into writing, read a novel read a published book that is similar to what you're doing and analyze it. Or I tell TV writers, if you're stuck writing on a pilot, 
go back and watch a real pilot. Go back and watch the Grey's Anatomy pilot and write down, have a notebook with you. And this is what I do. This I actually do this a lot when I'm working on pilots. I'll go back and I'll rewatch a famous pilot that's very successful. And I will write down a sentence or two in my notebook. What happened in that opening scene? What was the conflict and how did the scene end? What was the cliffhanger that led you to the next scene? Where are the act breaks? So by the end of it, it's not like I vegged in front of the TV watching a a show I've already seen. I've analyzed it, broken it down, and I figured out how it works. And then that just seeps. It's like you add the carrots. The sugar is extracted in the pressure cooker. So by doing that, I feel productive at the end of the day. I don't feel like crap because I'm like, okay, I studied you know, something that's going to help me. And the next day when I work on my pilot, I think about, oh, on Grey's Anatomy, she did that at the end of Act One. Hmm. And does that make sense? So that that's kind of the advice I would give. It makes total sense. And like, in essence, it's not bad to sit and veg and watch the Food Network and do that, but it has to be intentional. Right. And there, it has to be a response to a real feeling. But if you're just not in the mood to write, that doesn't mean don't work. <laughs> it just means find something else that you can move forward to be productive with because momentum is energy. And if you just halt and stop, you lose that momentum. And then the next day, it's going to be even harder to do that thing. So find a thing. And then if it all crashes down, veg, but you got to use that at the right time, not just because you don't feel like doing anything all the time or else you're never going to accomplish anything. That's very well said. Yeah. It's if you're going to procrastinate really, or vegetate or just throw in the towel, that has to be the break glass in case of emergency. You have to do everything up until that point. I mean, I think another metaphor is eating. It's like, you know, you've gotten over a cold and, and you just don't feel like eating, but you have to. You need nutrition. Yeah, you need at least, yeah, nutrify yourself. Is that a word? Have a banana, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Nutrify yourself. Yeah. I mean, you just gave like a whole bunch of, it basically like there's something you can do. There is something you can do, even if that is being entertained, watching a pilot, but get something out of it. Like get something out of it that's going to help you with what you're doing, even though you can't quite get to that place where you're just doing that right now. Like there's something you can do to help further what you're trying to accomplish so it's, it's super helpful at least for me so empower yourself that's good yeah. yes because then you add in when those moments happen where you have to power through like i have no choice to write it's actually easier to power through because it's less of a chore all right we're gonna put a pause in it here we're gonna come back at you in just a little bit with part two uh, the conversation shifts a little bit and we're going to we're going to get into um, one of Paula's most recent books and or actually her most recent book. Stay tuned. 